You're listening to Crossword, where cultural clues are the truth to the word. My name is Michelle Macklin, your host. You can find my podcast and other great Catholic radio programming on archangelradio.com. I can also be found on Twitter at Michelle Macklin one Today, we welcome author Dr. Robert Tracy McKenzie, author of We the Fallen People, The Founders and the Future of American Democracy. Professor McKenzie is professor and chair of the Department of History at Wheaton College. He's the author of many books and blogs, and you can find his blog about Christian faith in American history on faithinamericanhistory.wordpress.com. Welcome, Professor. Your book begins with a statement made by Hillary Clinton during the 2016 presidential campaign, America is great because America is good. Sean Spicer accused Clinton of plagiarism, but it turns out that statement has been around since Eisenhower, but attributed to none other than Alexis de Tocqueville. Why is this statement important to our history? America is great because America is good. And if ever America ceases to be great, to be good, she will cease to be great. Uh, so I start the book with that anecdote, picking up in the 2016 Democratic National Convention, and then just showing that quote has been used over and over and over again by a string of American presidents, by congressmen on both parties, by political prognosticators. And the punchline, of course, is that it's totally fabricated, that Tocqueville will never say anything uh, like that. The reason I, I want to emphasize that is because the book itself is really a deep dive into how we think about human nature and how that informs how we approach the public arena. And I think it's very revealing that Americans have grabbed onto that quote and are so in love with it because we really want to think of ourselves as virtuous. The thrust of the book is really to challenge particularly Christian readers to rethink that assumption and to rethink how they bring that assumption to their political engagement. Absolutely. And you talk about the Constitution as being designed for a fallen people, but its genius lay in how it held in tension two seemingly incompatible beliefs. And the first was the majority must generally prevail and that the majority is predisposed to seek personal advantage above the common good. So the majority is not always right. The majority is not always morally virtuous. And I really love how you look at the founders because these men understood that America is not necessarily good, that the American people are not necessarily good, that they are not virtuous. So I think what we have to ask you is how did the founders define virtue and why did they think the American people were not a virtuous people? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way that the founders use this idea or this term of virtue is a little bit different from, I think, how we might use it today. It often has connotations today of our private behavior. Sometimes it has connotations of you know, sexual chastity or modesty and things like that. In the 18th century, virtue was a public characteristic. It had to do with how you interacted with the public. And in particular, it had to do with your willingness to suppress your own interests in order to advance the common good. So a virtuous person is denying self uh, for the good of the community. Framers of the Constitution were pretty clear that there's nothing natural about virtue, that they thought it was possible for individuals, you know, from moment to moment to behave in a virtuous way. But as a generalization, they said that's not our default mode. We are self-interested naturally. Things that motivate us are desire for power, for pleasure, for profit. 
for uh, recognition and renown. And the dangerous part was that when that interfered with the rights of others, we're not all that hesitant to trample over those rights. At least that was their reading of human nature. So they took that reading of human nature with them when they crafted the Constitution. All the sorts of uh, characteristics of the Constitution that we take for granted that we learn about in you know seventh grade, the checks and balances, the separation of powers, those are all actually uh, resting on assumptions that individuals really will abuse power if they have it. As I write in the book, you can really make the case that there's not a line of the Constitution that in, non, in some sense doesn't reflect this understanding of human nature. And that human nature is that we are fallen. Eve ate the apple and we have been fallen ever since that point in time. And to understand our government as being something less than built or more than built on a people that are not perfect is a very dangerous, dangerous road to travel. So what I really like what you talk about is the difference between a democratic philosophy versus a democratic faith. And that is a real fine point and a very interesting point, but it goes back to how do we see ourselves? How do we understand ourselves based on biblical scripture of a fallen nature or something kind of a fantasy or made up of how perfect we are? Yeah, that's an important distinction that I try to make. You know, one of the fundamental points of the book, and it's not original with me, I really draw it particularly from Alexis de Tocqueville, whom we mentioned earlier. But one of the assumptions is that majority rule is simply morally indeterminate. Majority rule can lead to, you know, really just outcomes. It can lead to very unjust outcomes. A democracy can promote a free society. It can be authoritarian. It can be either of, of those outcomes. Thinking about this as we approach our thinking about democracy, I challenge readers to jettison what I label here democratic faith, which is the idea that democracy is intrinsically good that any problems that we identify in society can be solved simply by more democracy, and instead identify those values that are more foundational to us than democracy itself, whether that is justice or liberty or equality. That, that's something that I leave somewhat to the reader. But we need more foundational commitments that then become the framework in which we evaluate democracy, the framework with which we decide whether certain democratic outcomes are, in fact, just outcomes. And always keeping in mind that those are not synonyms, that democracy is not just another way for just or uh, to say just or good, that it's much more complicated than that because our natures are really flawed. You mentioned Alexander de Tocqueville, and I would like you to tell our audience just real quickly who Alexander de Tocqueville was, but more importantly about how his real genius was and how he decided to look at American democracy, because he came over thinking we were virtuous people. And I think within like the first day, he realized that <laughs> <laughs> Americans are not exactly virtuous people, but he was amazed about how democracy was still able to work in this country. Yep. So, so Alexis de Tocqueville is this French thinker. That's the best way to put him. He also served in the legislature when France was a republic. Tocqueville comes to the United States in 1831 He's convinced that the trend, sort of the arc of history, is at least in the Western part of the world, was moving toward an ever more democratic society. And he wanted to understand what that meant, what that implied for the future of mankind. And he came to the United States because he was pretty convinced the United States was really on the cutting edge of that trend, that the United States was more democratic 
than any other society in the world at the time. His assumption, as you said, Michelle, was that if democracy can flourish in a particular location, it must be, he thought, because the people are virtuous, because they're sort of predictably willing to sacrifice their own interests for uh, for the good of the whole. And when he comes to the United States, he actually rethinks that. Uh, his uh, experience, he tours the United States for about nine and a half months. He visits 17 states. He interviews literally hundreds of individuals while he is in the states. And he comes to the conclusion that that's just not the, the case. As he writes uh, in his journal, he kept these very detailed field notes. He writes, that he, I, he says, I cannot think of these people as virtuous. In fact, he actually describes uh, Americans really as a mixed mixture of virtues and vices. He is impressed by Americans' industriousness. He thinks Americans are very inventive. The economy is dynamic. Uh, there's so much that he admires. But on the other hand, he thinks Americans are very materialistic. Uh, he says they're the greediest people on the face of the earth, and that's actually a pretty much verbatim quote. And uh, he's appalled by some of the things he sees. He's appalled by slavery, for example. He arrives right as the United States is removing Native Americans west of the Mississippi River. He's appalled by that. So he really doesn't come away saying America is, is good. What he does say is that what has emerged in the United States is not as tyrannical as he thought it might be. So if you have a, a, a people who aren't by nature good and they are insistent that the majority must rule, logic tells him that there will be a lot of abuses, that there will be a lot of injustice. But in the reality, at least among the white population, the free population, he thinks there's much less uh, abuse than, than he might have expected. He worried about what he called the tyranny of the majority, when the majority would use its power really to abuse a minority rights. And he doesn't see a lot of that. And so that really intrigues him. So he wants to understand why that is. And his answer is complicated. And we tend to cherry pick his answers instead of sort of wrestling with how complex they are. Professor McKenzie, many today would say it's not the majority that rules, it's the minority that rules. I think in modern day democracy or modern day culture war politics, social justice politics, that we feel very much that it is we cater to the minority versus the majority. Do you think that's real? Yeah. And that, That's a hard one because it's, it's going to vary dramatically on one's uh, perspective. But you're exactly right. That's a, an argument that is made uh, widely in the United States right now. And I would just suggest if we go back to the creation of the Constitution, there are elements uh, of the structure of government the Constitution creates that are pretty explicitly non-democratic and unapologetically so. I mean, they were never intended to be democratic. The classic example of that would be the judiciary branch, particularly our federal court system, which pretty much by definition, if it functions in a significant way, it often functions to curb majority understandings of the law in the defense of particular minority rights. And that's controversial to us. There's no doubt about that. What I am struck by is rather the argument that we are making. So when someone says, you know, this is so bad, we live in a society, this particular aspect of life or that one is one which the minority is having its way, we are assuming that that's intrinsically wrong. I mean, I, right. I sort of want to start there. Our assumption is that that's intrinsically wrong. Right. Uh, and that's not an assumption that I think we should accept without scrutinizing. And in particular for Christians in the United States, I would say, you know, hold that understanding up to the light of scripture and church teaching 
and make sure that you feel good about it before it becomes a kind of axiom of your own political belief. Very interesting. Within a generation after the founding of the Constitution, our understanding of democracy changed dramatically. And this was with Andrew Jackson and his presidency. And I think people could argue the reason why it changed was one, because of Jackson himself, of his personality, his larger than life personality, his tendency towards being a demigod, let's put it that way. And also two very, very significant events, the bank war and the Indian Removal Act, where we saw the majority actually tyrannize the minority in this case. Would you care to discuss that? Sure. Yeah. So I do focus in the book a lot on the 1820s and 1830s. Andrew Jackson becomes president of the United States at the end of the 1820s and serves for eight years. And we remember that as a period that's really significant in the evolution of American democracy. It's, it's a time when elections begin to sort of resemble what we would recognize today with massive popular involvement, lots of rallies and speeches and partisan newspapers and so forth. And Jackson embodied a way of talking about human nature that becomes the norm. But because of his stature, uh, as you mentioned, his larger than life influence, he really sort of symbolizes some of these new ways of thinking. So so Jackson is going to say that people are absolutely virtuous, that they are honorable, they're noble, they're unselfish, they're committed to the common good, and that America will never go wrong as long as the majority always has its way. And uh, one of the things that, that Jackson will really sort of innovate in that becomes a pattern for later American history is that the individuals who oppose him or oppose his party, he begins to relegate outside of the ranks of, quote, the people. So if people are naturally just and naturally good, then if there are others who really disagree with you, that's hard to explain. And, and so one of the ways he begins to explain it is by saying, well, they're not the real people. They're not the true people. So Jackson will present himself as the defender of the, the real people, the hardworking folks, the common man, as he would have said at the time. They're all good, and he represents them. This shows through in the two episodes that you mentioned. One, the removal of Native Americans from the eastern half of the United States is something that Jackson prioritizes. It's really the thing that he feels most strongly about in terms of his own initiatives. He does this in the name of the people. And I just mentioned this because I want, I want readers to wrestle with the idea that Native American removal was, in fact, a democratic policy. And I, and I want your, your listeners to make sure I'm not saying that democracy is intrinsically bad. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that it's intrinsically neither good nor bad in any particular moment. Right, right. Uh, and so the removal of Native Americans had the wholehearted approval of the white electorate. And so I don't know anything to call that except a democratic outcome. And it's worth our noting that if Jackson had said, no, this is wrong, I don't care what the majority wants. We have longstanding treaties with Native American tribes. We're not going to break the word of the United States government. I will prevent that from happening. We would today probably say that was admirable leadership that showed great courage. What we can't say about that is that it was democratic, because at its heart, it would have been him thwarting the majority preference, uh, not implementing it. Hmm. Uh, and so I, I just want us to sort of think through that, that there are going to be times when what we might sort of intuitively think of as a really courageous act is most often an act that defies the majority, not expresses it. In fact, I could argue just as a Christian that sometimes 
one of the hardest things that we're ever called to do uh, is to disagree with the people that on the whole, we share lots of common values with, but we have to say, I'm sorry, in this particular instance, I can't go along with what you're, you're about. Sure. And it's interesting. I think it was only, we've had only one president that, and I believe I read in your book and I've read some other places that actually honored the Indian treaties or wanted to honor them. And that was George Washington. And after that, it kind of, kind of fell apart after he was the one that honored it. So very interesting. Today, we can fast forward about 200 years and we can draw some things from the Jacksonian era. We can see a lot of parallels. We can see, I would argue, we inherit more from the Jacksonian era than we do from the founding fathers in our understanding of democracy and how we see it played out in the public square. How do we get back to the original, the founding fathers, besides the civic lessons, you know, (laughs) which actually just read the Federalist Papers, folks, and that'll get you back there, you know. So something has arisen that is very disturbing, and this is this populism that you Mm -hmm. are talking about. And I don't care what political candidate you support or you don't support, there is sort of a righteousness that the people support this. And the people supporting this, it may not be righteous. Yeah, that's good. You you mentioned or referred to populism. That's certainly one of the phenomena that really characterizes, I think, American politics today. And one of the things I just want uh, readers of the book to see is that it's not a it's not a new phenomenon by any stretch. And we really see it in the United States context for the first time in the 1820s and 30s during the Jackson period. Uh, populism tells a story about our lives that we situate our own experiences in. It tells us that there's this ongoing struggle between the people and their enemies, and that in a real sense, our lives are at stake. Our quality of life, our kind of life is all at stake. And if the other side prevails, life as we know it will basically end. So it has a kind of appeal to fear. It has a real catastrophizing element to it. It tells us, I mean, you've probably heard this, if we don't win this election, there'll never be another election. The idea is that we're really facing an existential threat. And that's the narrative that we hear in both North, um, say North and South yeah. from a Civil War story. It's, it's, a, it's a narrative that we hear both from red and blue states. Uh, there's a, a survey just uh, announced uh, this week that su- suggested that among Republicans, to mention that was the, the survey, 52% of Republican respondents suggested that it may be time to separate into two countries. The thing that I want to challenge us as, as Christians to think through is what we are assuming about human nature uh, when we come to our political debates and our political positions. And I just think so often, even this idea about we'd be better off if we just separated It's really suggesting that the line between righteousness and unrighteousness, between good and evil, is one that can be easily drawn between political parties uh, or between regions of the country. I love the quotation from a half century ago from the Russian dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who said, oh, if it were only that easy, if it were only that the line ran between nations. But, But he says, of course, it doesn't. It runs within every human heart. So I think that's something that the framers understood. They didn't always speak in explicitly Christian language or terminology, but they had this real palpable sense that within each of us, there is always this capacity to harm our neighbor. And they actually 
believe that we had the capacity to do acts of great love or courage or kindness. They weren't wholly dark in their understanding of human nature, but they just they took for granted that that potential was always there. And so I think returning to their worldview today would mean actually turning some of our skepticism on ourselves uh, so that we're not only uh, thinking the worst of, of those who disagree with us, but that we are honestly acknowledging that we are not without sin, that we are fallen ourselves. I talk a lot in the book about just bringing an understanding of original sin to bear in the way that we think politically. Original sin, the, the idea that we all uh, come into the world with a nature that we've inherited that says the thing I want most is to rule my own life. The thing I want most is to please myself. And that applies. The, the mark of the fall affects every nation every era, every political party, every political leader. And that should lead us to a kind of humility, a little bit of modesty about the superiority of our own views. The other thing that I really challenge readers to do is just to to feel again the preciousness of the idea of imago dei, of the idea that we are all created in the image of God, that you will never meet an ordinary human being, as the writer C.S. Lewis put it. And I think if we took that seriously, it would constrain us, it would obligate us to be a little bit more charitable toward the other side. Now, I'm under no illusions. I don't think I'm that naive that all of a sudden this will transform American politics. But I do believe that church in the United States, whatever happens with a larger political context, we have the, the power by the grace of God to shape our testimony to the society. And I think the way that we're engaging the world needs to show both our own appreciation of our fallenness and our appreciation of the preciousness of those with whom we disagree. And I can't help but believe that to the degree that we modeled that, uh, that it wouldn't have a positive effect on our public life. One of the things that you really bring out in the book that's very interesting is about when Alexis de Tocqueville, it's interesting that he came after the French Revolution. He understood what happens when the church aligns, and I'm saying the church now, I'm saying the Roman Catholic Church at this point in time, aligns with political power, because political power can fall, and the church becomes another faction, another political party. I'm Roman Catholic. I'm also a canon lawyer for the Roman Catholic Church, as my audience well knows. I am always very, very hard on bishops and priests who take a political position because that is not their job. Their job is to lead us through the tribulations to help us testify that the ultimate politics, the ultimate king, the ultimate authority is the love of Jesus Christ. And that and I had talked till I am blue in the face on this one, and I know you do it on the Protestant side of the house, yeah. which is really good. And but it's such a contrast that Alex Tocqueville is looking at our 1820s America, fearful of religion, of the mixing of religion and politics. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right that Tocqueville's uh, context. He was so influenced by his upbringing in France. He was born after the French Revolution. But his parents were alive at the time and both spent uh, months in a dungeon. They were fearing that they were going to be sent to the guillotine. As it turned out, they escaped with their lives. But that's always in the back of his mind. And what Tocqueville had seen had happened in France 
was that when popular sentiment really became opposed to the monarchy and this mass movement to topple the monarchy uh, unfolded or erupted, that it also put the church uh, right in the crosshairs of the the French Revolution. Because in that context, most French Republicans, those who favored a republic, believed that the church and the monarchy were inseparable and that to topple one meant toppling the other and vice versa. And so that's a lesson that Tofel takes with him. He believed it had been a colossal mistake to attack the church in France. And in fact, he makes one of the most powerful arguments for the importance of religion to public life that you'll find. He says that despotism can survive without faith, but liberty cannot. He, he doesn't believe that a free society can last indefinitely without an a important, strong religious dimension. When he comes to the United States, he's actually very impressed about the vitality of American churches. And he asks the people he interviews constantly about that. And time after time, they tell him the church in the United States is flourishing because of the separation of church and state. Uh, by which they meant that religious figures were uh, really very intentional, very determined that they would not have a close association with any political party and are doing their best to uh, suggest that uh, political issues were questions that Christians could disagree upon, that there was that kind of um, latitude. And he really sort of makes a warning in his book, Democracy in America. He says that if it ever ceases to be that way, uh, that could have catastrophic effects on the church, uh, not just on, on the society as a whole, but specifically on the witness of the church. And the way he puts it, I love, it's a, such a, a strong image. He says that in France, a church had lashed itself ultimately to a cadaver. When the monarchy was dying, it brought down the church as well, is what Tocqueville was saying in France. And his warning to us today is that if Christians become too affiliated with particular political figures or political parties. They are inviting all the animosity that those parties would elicit that aren't necessarily animosity toward the church, except that the church is now seen as an ally of of a particular political party. He really, I think, warns us that when we trade political support for some sort of influence in our government, it's a bargain that in the long term can come with enormous cost to our testimony. Oh, absolutely. We saw this in 2016 and 2020 in the presidential elections where we saw both uh, Roman Catholics and Protestants lining up with political parties. And that is unconscionable. That is not American. And we cannot do that. We have one authority and that king is Jesus Christ. And that's who we promote. We don't promote a political party. We don't promote political platforms. And uh, that will bite us, bite us, bite us. It, it absolutely will. Well, you know what, Professor, I know you have to go teach your class. Your fact- book. If you have a preference of where people can buy your book, where should they buy your book? Well, of course, it's available on Amazon, but I would say go first to InterVarsity Press, which is the publisher, and they have an online catalog, and they'd be happy to send it uh, out to anyone who, who wishes it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really, I cannot encourage enough people to read this book. If I win the lottery, I'm going to buy a copy of this book and send it to every <laughs> legislator I've ever met. So, and well, everybody who's there. No, I was just going to say, Michelle, I hope you win the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> I did, Believe me, I do too, in more ways than one. Well, listen, thank you so much and God bless and uh, have a great class. 
Thank you. God bless you as well. Thank you, Michelle. You've been listening to Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. My name is Michelle McAloon, your host, and you can find my podcast and other great Catholic radio programming on ArchangelRadio.com. I can also be found on Twitter at Michelle McAloon1. Thank you all for listening. God bless.